Welcome to the Canadian Real Estate Investor, where hosts Daniel Foch and Nick Hill navigate the market and provide the tools and insights to build your real estate portfolio. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of the Canadian Real Estate Investor Podcast, where you guessed it, we talk about Canadian real estate investing. And I am joined here today and every Tuesday and Friday for your listening enjoyment and informational purposes, not investment advice, not financial advice is the disclaimer, which you usually hear at the end. But uh, I'm joined by a guy named Nick Hill, also known as my buddy Nick on Instagram. How's it going, Nick? What are we talking about today? Very well, Dan, and thank you for having me. I'm excited about today's episode. And if you're listening for the first time, welcome. And if you are a regular listener, welcome back. We've got a jam-packed episode for you today where we're going to be talking about housing affordability, which seems to be improving, I guess. We'll see. Yeah, I mean, still uh, uh, still barely affordable, but it is apparently getting better, allegedly. Uh, allegedly. We'll see. We'll dive into it. Uh, what's happening with house prices and volumes of sales, uh, hot topic, office occupancy, and the return to office. We're going to touch on the rate pause. And of course, another hot topic, immigration and a correlated topic with that rental housing and specifically the shortage of rental housing that we'll likely experience. So excited to dive in today, Dan, but I think you've got a little something to to make us feel good before we do that. Yeah, of course. I want to make you feel good, but I also want to make our <laughs> listeners feel good about leaving us reviews because they're starting to get creative and funny and, and all this stuff, which is good. We want people to... The reason we do this is because we want you to leave us a review just in case you didn't figure this one out. This review says, entertaining and informative by I Need Money 1678, which is a hilarious screen <laughs> name, by the way. Um, same. 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 <laughs> yeah, can relate, totally relate to this person. Um, Nick and Dan do a great job providing interesting and educational content in a simple and engaging way. Look forward to the consistent releases every Tuesday and Friday. Relevant content for any level of experience in the real estate space. Look forward to starting a portfolio with the guidance they provide. And we look forward to hearing about it when you do because that's exciting for us. Yeah, amazing. I need money, 1678, if that's your real name. Appreciate you leaving the review. Uh, let's dive into it, Dan, because we've got a lot to cover today. So we're going to start off with office occupancy and the Toronto office occupancy seems to be stabilized right now at about 42, 43% of, of pre-COVID occupancy. And actually Wednesday is the peak day uh, with 55% of pre-COVID, which is interesting because I just saw this article that actually states that Tuesday is the most productive workday. So, you know, you'd figure you'd see the heightened um, occupancy on a Tuesday or a Wednesday, but what, what are your thoughts? It's post-COVID world, man. People don't go to the office to be productive. <laughs> they go there. They go to, see their, go to yeah. see their buddies. Social cohesion. Um, yeah, I, I mean, this is interesting to me. I, you certainly can see it in traffic, at least in the GTA. Like Wednesday, if you try and dri drive downtown on a Monday versus a Wednesday, there is a very distinct difference. So uh, for context, also Mondays and Fridays are the slowest days. So it seems like everybody's basically taking that six day weekend. No, but, but not actually. We know that you actually work when you're working from home, but most people are actually going to the financial core in the middle of the week. It seems interesting to me that, you know, in the past four months, we've seen, and when, when that headline says pre COVID occupancy, but this is uh, footfall. So this is like the number of people 
going into buildings. It's not real estate occupancy, which is the opposite of vacancy mm-hmm. rate. Um, so just for context, which we're going to get into the, the actual vacancy rates from, um, some of the commercial services guys. Um, and with that comes the headline from, from Bloomberg News, Ari, uh, Altstetter, who I actually did an article with recently. Great guy, great journalist. Um, Canada's office vacancies hit a record as space floods the market. The vacancy rate at Canadian office buildings reached a record high at the end of last year as companies cut backs on space while new supply continued to hit the market. Nationwide, 17.1% of offices were empty as 2.1 million square feet of space failed to find a tenant. According to a fourth quarter report by CBRE, much of that vacant real estate was in Toronto, where owners of old buildings failed to replace companies relocating to new ones. And technology firms scaled back growth plans had been deepening um, layoffs in that in- industry, the, the brokerage said. So this to me means that you've got companies that are either growing or downsizing. Anyways, they're changing space. They're moving out of those maybe class B buildings, maybe buildings outside of that central business district downtown. They're opting for that sexier, smaller space. And now these, these larger buildings who have bigger floor plates that maybe have um, even better TI options, which is tenant improvement or anything like that, they are now having a hard time filling space. Yeah. And I think one of the big takeaways here is there's a complete rethinking of the way that we use the financial core and the central business district happening right now. And this is an urban economic thing, just as much as it's a real estate thing. Nobody really knows what the final outcome is going to look like, but it is going to be different than it was before COVID. And so I think that there is an investment thesis to be made based on what you think might happen. And we encourage our listeners to all kind of formulate their own investment thesis. Maybe you're bullish on, you know, downtown condos because you think we're going to see a full resurrection or maybe Airbnbs or maybe you want, you know, bullish on the adaptive reuse of buildings. That's like similar to what's happening to 6 million square feet in Calgary. Um, but there is certainly some sort of investment thesis and a differentiating factor that could be happen or, or that could be established here. There's the range of potential outcomes is big. Uh, the article goes on to say the vacancy rate in downtown Toronto, Canada's financial capital, rose to 13.6%, the highest since the third quarter of 2003, which is Ouch. wild. Major office markets around the world are coming under increasing pressure as companies adjust to the persistence of remote work since the COVID-19 pandemic. With fears of a slowing economy prompting cost-cutting, firms are scrutinizing the real estate footprints as employees' preference to work from home, at least part-time, lessens requirements for space. Now, in Canada, that's widening the divide between the newer high-end properties with amenities designed to lure these workers back to the office and the less attractive older ones. Vacancies at the so-called Class B offices rose at twice the pace of a Class A office building in the past 11 quarters. And that's, again, referencing that CBRE report. Thanks to the team at CBRE for putting that report together. And this goes back to what I was saying earlier, right? You see people leaving these less sexy buildings, opting for probably smaller footprints at the newer ones that are actively trying to pursue people to bring them in. Now, with empty space piling up, developers are slowing the pace of new projects. It's not great. The 110 million square feet of offices currently planned nationwide is the smallest amount since the third quarter of 2017. Yet 62% of what's actively under construction is expected for delivery in 2023, suggesting the office market may come under more pressure later this year. 
I think it is interesting, you know, and it, it kind of goes to that long cycle where in this development space where, you know, you, you're making decisions for a market. Like imagine you developed and put a shovel in the ground. I mean, CIBC, that new CIBC project in downtown CIBC Toronto is a great Park, example. Yeah. Like imagine you chose to develop that two years before COVID or chose to build that two years before COVID. And now the assumptions that you're operating your project on are completely different. And, and, you know, and we don't know what the second order effects of this are, right? Like, you know, now we're seeing the recession part happening. Now we're seeing the layoffs part happening. And, you know, we're at a, almost a secular peak of the employment cycle. Like empl- unemployment is basically as low as it's ever been. So, you know, you could almost say, okay, the only place that it can really go is, is up from here. Right. And, and, you know, a lot of people are discussing, oh, you know, the financial core is done and we should be converting all of these office buildings to residential. Like oh, everyone on TikTok is always saying this stuff. Whenever I bring up this, this, um, stat about office occupancy, the reality is it's like, it's not that easy. Like you can't it's, just, one yeah. does not simply, like that's a perfect application of the one does not simply meme. You can't just convert an office building to residential space. Like that's just not how it works. It's, it's a massive undertaking. And, and you know what? Maybe it, this deserves its whole own segment, which it probably does. So we won't go into a ton of detail, but high level, everybody, like just think about if you've ever been into a major office tower downtown, think about the floor. I mean, those are like 25,000 square feet. Yeah. They're of, like of one acre, right? They're like a one acre floor plate. Like exactly. Like you're not fitting like a little one bedroom with a view off of that. Also, everybody you know, gets a bowling no, alley maybe and then a bowling ex- alley ex- with a bed on exactly, it. Exactly. Right. Like it, they weren't designed for that. So, I mean, yes, you could retrofit, but like the cost to, to turn over the, the plumbing and convert the HVAC and, and the different, code uh that, that you have to follow it it's it's a massive undertaking and, and unfortunately in a lot of cases probably not worth it um to convert something like that in the downtown core anyways well yeah i mean i guess it just becomes a question you know it's a cost benefit analysis can it be done for cheaper than the you know per exactly. square foot build cost exactly. from, from scratch and the fact that we're not seeing it happening in in the gta would say probably not the fact that you're seeing it happening in markets like calgary would say oh yeah maybe because you know we can go buy some of these assets for a lot cheaper on per square foot basis and it does make sense for us to convert them over but mm. Before we we run away, because I feel like you and I could talk this one forever, and maybe we will. We'll have to do a whole episode on it and talk to a couple people who are doing projects like that in in Calgary. Um, Let's go to the next article here. Housing affordability. This comes from National Bank's Housing Affordability Monitor. Housing affordability is the first, just saw the first improvement in over two years. Um, So... And this is Kyle Doms and Alexandra Ducharme. They do great research on this stuff. I always love reading this report. So for the first time in nine quarters, housing affordability improved in Canada. Not only was it the largest improvement in over three years, but it also ended the longest sequence of declining home affordability since 1986 to 1989. And uh, if you want to go learn more about that era, go back and check out our second episode where we cover all of the recessions and the effects that they had on housing. Look at that. We're just breaking records here, breaking our own records nonstop. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Um, 
We, you know, I, I, I think it's worth looking back at that because, you know, listeners come to the show for value and we, and we kind of anticipate every time that this report comes out, you anticipate, you can look at the cycles and you, there is a degree of predictivity to it, right? Because there really is the underlying fundamental is whether or not people can afford houses. So affordability matters. Um, the article goes on to say, still, that is not to say that the median home is affordable in Canada <laughs> as the mortgage payment uh, as a percentage of income or MPPI registered at 64.6%, the second highest level since 1981. Feeding into the refinement, once one prices declined for a second consecutive quarter and did so at the fastest pace since 1990. Although the five-year benchmark mortgage rate used to calculate affordability rose by 17 bips in the fourth quarter, that was more than compensated for by those falling price and rising incomes, which we're seeing right now. So the slight rise in rates nonetheless brought the uh, rate to its highest level since 2008. Preliminary data for the first quarter of 2023, as well as the outlook for the monetary policy in Canada, suggests that we may be peaking in terms of mortgage rates but you know we'll we can see. get to that after but we'll i see. mean you know what there is evidence that fixed side is probably going to come down um the overnight rate unlikely we'll see any major changes anytime soon so the highlights in this report affordability improved in eight of the 10 markets covered in q4 on a sliding scale of markets from best to worst improvement victoria Hamilton, Toronto, Vancouver. So you can tell those are all likely driven by price. Ottawa, Gatineau, Montreal, Winnipeg, and then Quebec had the lowest improvement in affordability, but wasn't that bad, all that bad to begin with. And then you see on the other side of the scale, Edmonton and Calgary actually seeing a deterioration in housing affordability, likely because prices are still continuing to go grow there. And, and a lot of that is because, you know, we're still seeing massive interprovincial migration. Um, but also, uh, incomes are, are relatively strong and, uh, and people are chasing a lot of those job vacancies there. Yeah. You know, I was going to ask because I, I, you know, you and I both support the fundamentals in Alberta, but this seems to be a bit of a headwind for, for house prices, but you know. Yeah, it's, it's tough to say because I, it hasn't gotten to the point where that city is unaffordable or either of those cities or the province is unaffordable yet. And so it becomes a headwind once you're battling against that lack of affordability. Great segue, Dan, into what income you need to buy a house in different cities in Canada. So let's chat about that. Um, comparator site ratehub.ca recently took a look at the minimum income needed to afford a home across 10 Canadian cities. To do so, it looked at an average home price in each market as of January 2023, as well as what kind of mortgage you'd have to qualify for to finance that purchase. Now, depending on the city, the income needed to enter the housing market ranges significantly. Now, if you're living in Toronto or Vancouver, for example, you'll need to be bringing in more than 200000 of annual income, either as an individual or split with a partner. However, that figure is slightly more than 100000 in markets such as Montreal, Halifax, and Calgary. So we're at about half the level of affordability. And on the other end of the scale, you'll need an income just under $80,000 annually to afford a home in Edmonton or Winnipeg. 
And the RBC Economics actually disagrees with the improved affordability. It says affordability can t- uh, issues to, are to ease, but only gradually. So it's interesting to see these almost differences in the theses of, of major mm-hmm. Canadian banks. Uh, it says this means the sharp deterioration in housing affordability since 2021 won't unwind quickly. Buyers will continue to face steep challenges, especially in BC... Ontario and other expensive markets where ownership costs have ballooned during the pandemic. Lingering affordability issues will stand in the way of a quick market rebound and a material easing in buyers' budget constraints. And you can see that a lot in the rental market right now. And it might be worth thinking about, are we going to continue to see more and more of this interprovincial migration in both the rental and ownership tenure until that affordability uh, recovers with, you know, and coupling that with the the work from home piece. If people can work from home, are they going to go to the place where they can afford it a little bit more? Anyway, get to the next point here in the RBC uh, report. I, I mean, I do it just to, to, for your point, I, I think so. I think that's already been a major of, you know, we've seen a ton of interprovincial migration due to that fact, right? Well, I can work from anywhere. Um, what am I doing in Ontario or what am I doing in Vancouver or, or whatever? Anyways, uh, the RBC, this is an, uh, an excerpt from the RBC special housing report uh, titled monthly housing market update and housing market outlook. It's increasingly looks like Canada's housing market is finally finding its footing, at least from a transaction volume perspective. Uh, the slide in home sales resales has been easing significantly in recent months. February results even showed a slight 2.3 increase from January to 403,400 units. That's annualized. We think it's points to a nearby bottom in many local markets. Now, this isn't stopping the price correction for now. Uh, though the national composite MLS home price index fell another 1.1% month over month in February. Marking the 12th straight monthly decline. That is a full year of declines. The pace did ease a little from an average of minus 1.5% in the previous six months. But for the most part, the trajectory is unambiguously down, especially in Ontario and BC. A sharp drop in new listings and uh, tightening in demand supply conditions in February could signal a Moderation in price declines over the coming months, it's, if sustained, it would support our view that prices will bottom further, sorry, sometime in the summer or shortly thereafter. So the timing varying, obviously, on a market-to-market basis. Interesting that, predictions. Yeah, I think for the most part, that that would be, like, I would probably stretch out my timeline to be sometime within the next, you know, like 12 to, to 16 months, maybe. Um, market isn't flooding with properties for sale. And it, the truth is actually quite the contrary. And, and really, nobody has figured out exactly why this is. Probably the best argument is that switching costs are so expensive, paying a realtor, land transfer tax, all of that stuff. Moving, Moving in general. Yeah. yeah, I mean, everything's inflationary. Um, the 7.9% plunge in the number of homes put up for sale last night was striking. And this is kind of putting us into a, a tight market. It's almost kept us in that, that balanced market. So prices aren't in in free fall. It certainly ran counter to fears that soaring interest rates would trigger a rate, a wave of sellers, right? So that not a rave of sellers, which I tried to say there, that would That's, be fun though. That would be, that sounds fun. <laughs> it's good, good marketing uh, tool for realtors. Maybe have a, a seller rave. Um, so, um, more to the point, it was, it was markets in Ontario and BC uh, that recorded larger drops in supply. And so, you know, 
when and it's they're under more intense pressure there because of high interest rates and they're more credit dependent markets. Um, and so there was a continuation of this well established downward trend over the past year, and we suspect the the magnitude of the swing in February was an anomaly, and that's from RBC. So I guess we'll see, um, you know, what the spring market brings because we know that's typically when a lot of the transaction happens. The next couple of months, I think, are really going to be decisive in the data for what what the fate of Canadian real estate is. Mm-hmm. Now, activity says it's still depressed despite uh, the monthly advance. Buyers shrugged off any supply dip last month. Resales rose in all major markets, including Vancouver, up 15.2% month over month. Calgary up 2.4%. Regina up 6.8%. Toronto up 8.5%. Ottawa up 2.1%. Montreal up 3.7%. And Halifax up 2.3%. Still, these increases did little to alter the bigger picture and activity remains generally depressed at decade low levels, excluding the shutdown period. Obviously, that uh, that, that skews some data, but you never like to see the word depressed when you're talking about real estate or real estate transaction. It's just It's just sad, you know? Yeah, not a big fan of that, uh, that outlook. Um, <laughs> so, you know, they can they go on to say that we have seen wide spread price declines. Price trends were were largely unchanged in February, but on a year-over-year basis, um, you know, the numbers are pretty scary. These are might be some of the biggest that well in, in a lot of cities they are the biggest uh, and and I think nationally this is the biggest drop uh we've ever seen in house prices. So the MLS HPI has plummeted 19% in Ontario and almost 13% in BC, both exceeding the 16% national decline. Um the smaller Ontario markets have led the way, namely London down 25%, Cambridge down 25%, Kitchener-Waterloo down 24%, Brantford down 23%, Niagara down 23%, Hamilton down 22%, and Barrie down 22%. The index is off 18% since the peak in the Toronto area. Fraser Valley is down 20%, Okanagan down 12%, the Vancouver is down 10%, the Vancouver, the Vancouver area, (laughs) uh, and experienced material price drops in, in most of BC. Most markets in the rest of Canada continue to face mildly declining prices. Um, Calgary is among the few bucking that trend. I think Calgary, Edmonton might be down. I can't remember. They kind of, kind of seems to be like up and down. Um, but just barely with the MLS HPI basically flat in, in Calgary. I think it's up 1.8%. So RBC goes on to say that the bottom is in sight, but no snapback, which I kind of interpret as look, we, we can, we're, we're now projecting where we will, you know, bottom out, but the road back might be a bit tougher. So our view is that the home resale activity will be first state to stabilize, followed by prices a few months later, provided that the Bank of Canada is done raising interest rates. What happens next will disappoint housing bulls. Uh, we see the recovery phase starting slowly later this year as affordability issues and a weaker economy continue to hold back buyers. The pace should progressively pick up in 2024 once the economy clears its soft patch. That's a nice way of putting it. Inflation returns to target and the Bank of Canada reverses part of the massive rate increases it's imposed on Canada since March 2020. Uh, Booming immigration will fuel demand through the medium term and and possibly beyond, raising the odds of a deep supply shortage in the future of home building if uh, if we fail to pick up material. Now, seeing Canada's housing market, look, uh, this is just yeah, sorry, we'll just we'll include this in the uh, in the show notes here. This is just a link to the report. 
Yeah, for sure. So uh, the report then goes on to say um, Bank of Canada may be done hiking rates, but it's not about to cut. Um, and they think that the 25 basis point hike was the final strike, which they were correct on in this report. And then we'll see a pause. Um, and this is a historic campaign that drove policy rate up. From a magnitude perspective, we haven't seen anything that high. Um, any downward drift in long bond yields uh, is also likely to be viewed as a positive side of turnaround. And we are seeing a decrease in bond yields right now. A lot of that is people rushing into flight to quality, which we've discussed a little bit. Um, but they, you know, they go on to say that prices have further to drop in the near term, which is interesting. And, and, and that's why they're saying there's no snapback. And we've talked about this a lot. Every time we examine cycles, we say, look, it drops heavily at the beginning when people are like panic. And then they kind of grind down slowly as you start to see the long term effect of those interest rates. So other price measures. Um, MLS HPI and MLS average sale, sales price have already exceeded their national peak to trough forecast of minus 15%. And that's largely because these measures are more volatile than the RPS HPI, which is what RB, RBC uses. Uh, they soared high, higher during the pandemic or the dramatic run up earlier in the pandemic. And they were, they responded more quickly during the downturn, which is typically the case in past cycles is what they say. Mm-hmm. And and Dang, you covered most of this in a recent article that you wrote for uh, Real Estate Magazine, I believe, titled Canadian Home Sales Rise in February Despite Drop in New Supply. Is that, is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. I've talked a lot about that. Wow. Love to see it. Everyone go read that article in Canadian Real Estate Magazine. Uh, the Canadian real estate market continues to tighten with the number of home sales increasing in February while new listings declined. This trend tells us that buyers were more active than sellers pointing towards a spring market that could uh, be turning in favor of the latter. Despite the number of sales growing by 2.3% from January to February, the transaction volume is down 40% below February of 2022, February of last year. And it is worth noting that February of last year was a very hot market and a bit of an outlier data point, but volume is still well below the 10-year average, which is a lot uh, more stable of a data point. Yeah. And the key thing that, that professionals in, in my industry and in our industry need to distinguish between is whether this uptrend indicates a recovery, which, you know, a lot of economists seem to think it doesn't, or it's a return to just that spring market seasonality. Like we've seen now two consecutive months of price increase. We're likely going to see more heading into March in a lot of the major real estate markets, but you always see that January, February, March, because there's just a change in the data composition mix. So in a typical uh, year composition mix and seasonality can drive price and volume up in February and March, the impact of these cycles on national trends is best understood on a market-by-market basis. So this is why you need a local professional. Understand what's going on. So house prices have fallen the most on record. The actual but not seasonally adjusted national average sale price posted an 18.9% year-over-year decline in February. This marks the largest drop in home prices on record. And I think this is why you have everyone out there calling the bottom because we've never seen anything like this before, right? This is surpassing even the heights of the 1981 and 1989 market cycles. On the bright side, the worst is likely behind us. As most markets peaked in February of 2022, price data was especially skewed by, of course, Toronto and Vancouver. Well, smaller markets peaked in March, uh, one month later. This is likely... One more month of shocking price drop data ahead. Again, it's all a lagging indicator, right? So uh, be weary of that. But it's unlikely we will see a worse number than next month. 
the reality greatly impacts consumer sentiment as buyer activity tends to ramp up once economically uncertain has subsided. Yeah, and I think you know we are approaching further economic uncertainty and toy and turmoil with the banking crises. You know, now now people are talking about Deutsche Bank, you know, being under threat and the you know the global systemic importance of a of a domino it being the next domino like Deutsche Bank is is really scary. And it is evident in Korea's chart A if you go look at the Korea stats page that Canadians respond to economic uncertainty with a big slowdown in real estate activity. Um, this uncertainty is manifested in a reduction of bond yields. So again, people jumping into that, that flight to safety and which is the primary pricing mechanism for fixed rate mortgages in Canada. So, you know, there could be some relief ahead for buyers who are restricted by interest rates, not by price. Mm, very good points, Dan. Now let's jump back to some RBC comments. Uh, the Bank of Canada may be done hiking rates, but it's not about to cut. And then they go on to the economic outlook from the Bank of Canada. And this is a, a, a speech from the House of Commons. So they reference that in the RBC stuff. But this is from Tiff Macklem after, I think, when they were doing the pause. So it says, we know it takes time for higher interest rates to work through the economy and slow demand and reduce inflation. That's why policy needs to be forward-looking, guided by what we have seen so far and our outlook for economic growth and inflation. We think it's time to pause interest rate hikes and assess whether monetary policy is restrictive enough to return to inflation to the 2% target. If economic developments are broadly in line with our forecast and inflation comes down as pr- predicted, then we shouldn't need to raise rates further. But if evidence begins to accumulate to show that inflation is not declining in, long- in line with our forecast, we are prepared to raise our policy rate further. In our January outlook, we expected economic growth to be close to zero for the first three quarters of the year. With growth in demand stalled, supply will catch up and the economy will move from excess demand to modest excess supply. This will relieve inflationary pressures. We expect CPI inflation to fall to around 3% in the middle of this year and reach the 2% target in 2024. We've already seen a momentum shift in goods prices for inflation to get back to 2%. The effects of higher interest rates need to work their way through the economy and restrain spending even enough for supply to catch up. The tightness in the labor markets continue to ease. Wage growth needs to moderate and service price inflation needs to cool. Inflation expectations also need to come down and businesses return to more normal pricing behavior. If these things don't happen, inflation will get stuck above the 2% target and additional monetary tightening will be required. So, you know, it is interesting because I, I referenced this thing on, and it's always on Twitter. It's called Trueflation. Um, if you look it up, just Google it, uh, T-R-U-flation. Um, and it, it measures, I think they do the US and the UK, but, um, Trueflation is now, so like their true measure of inflation in the US is now down in like the fours. And it, this was something that a lot of people were more bearishly were referencing saying, Oh, inflation's so bad when Trueflation was much higher than US inflation. Um, you know, this time last year, let's say, to, to say, oh, this is the honest representation of inflation, but now it's below what inflation is saying. And so it is interesting from my perspective, you know, in Canada, it's like if you use the 1980s version of CPI that they would uh, use to measure inflation, inflation would be something like 15% right now. No. <laughs> um, but, but, you know, I mean, the reality is recessions curb inflation and we, and we're in one. 
likely. I mean, the Bank of Canada even says here they expect uh, 0% growth, which is when adjusted for inflation is real negative growth. So you're in basically a recession. Um, and talking about adjusting for inflation, let's talk a little bit about net negative interest rates as well. Cause this is, there's this chart that I've shared and this is a little bit out of date now, but just worth, it's an interesting thought experiment. Global central bank policy rates. So it basically takes the central bank rate minus that country's inflation, the CPI in that country. And again, they're all different baskets of goods. So inflation is a little bit different on a per country basis. But just as a thought experiment, we're going to do a couple of these to just see how Canada is faring globally. So I'm going to go from worst to best, I think. So Australia has a 3.6% central bank rate, 7.4% CPI inflation, which is a minus 3.8% real adjusted for inflation central bank rate. So a net negative interest rate or negative real interest rate. So it means you can go borrow money for zero, less than 0% basically. For free. They're, yeah. they're asking, they're giving, they're giving you money to go borrow money. Yeah. So, well, yeah, I mean, the, nobody's giving you money. It's, not, it's still hard to get it, but yeah, and it's not, but you get it. You get the point. Yeah. Switz, Switz, yeah. Switzerland is a negative 1% central bank rate, which is crazy. Um, so below, <laughs> below zero. Uh, they I wonder have like if that's zero. changed in the last couple of weeks with a yeah, little, bit, sure a little bit of turmoil in Switzerland right yeah. now. 3.4% um, inflation. So they have a negative 2.4% real central bank rate. New Zealand, 4.75% uh, central bank rate, 7.2% inflation, negative 2.5% real central bank rate. US, 463 percent central bank rate, 6.4% inflation and a negative 1.8% real central bank rate. And then we get to Canada. And this is again, it, leave it up to yourselves to determine whether or not you trust the data coming out of Canada and CPI and all of that stuff. And I'm not saying whether or not I do, but some people argue that it's not accurate or we're using different CPI than the States or whatever it is. But Canada is at 4.5% central bank rate. And I guess it's point. 2% inflation. Um, but this has it at a negative 1.4% real central bank rate. And so, you know, most people will say that eventually your interest rate needs to be net positive for inflation, like for, for that kind of inflationary cycle to end. Eventually your interest rate has to meet the rate of inflation. It's just what come, does inflation come down sooner, like faster, or does the rate go up faster? And ideally they meet in the middle kind of. Yeah, great stuff, Dan. So I'm going to give – this isn't really a definition of what I'm going to do here. This is almost a bit of an explanation. So an explanation, is that, is that – I like that, that, that yeah. I don't, yeah. Okay, so let's talk about the negative real interest rates that Dan was mentioning. Now, this is from the IMF, which is the International Monetary Fund. You'd think they know a couple things about finance over there. So for most of history, nominal interest rates, stated rates that borrowers actually pay a loan on have been positive. That is greater than zero. However, consider what happens when the rate of inflation exceeds the return on savings or loans. When inflation is 3% and the interest rate on a loan is 2%, the lender's return after inflation is less than zero. In such a situation, we say the real interest rate, the nominal rate minus the rate of inflation is negative. And those are kind of the calculations that you just went over, Dan, giving us those great examples. 
Yeah. And so, as I mentioned, like the comparison above isn't 100% perfect because each country's CPI or inflation accuracy can be a little bit different. The most well-known indicator of the consumer price index measures the percentage change in the basket of goods and services consumed by households. Um, and I mentioned someone actually told me that the 1980s inflation measurement system, Canada would be at like something like 15% inflation. Um, Terrifying. I think the, yeah. I think the last <laughs> thing we're going to jump on here is, I guess, two points um, that kind of go together. So immigration, we're going to talk about the huge immigration record that we just hit in Canada, and then also the housing or that rental housing shortage that RBC does some really interesting, presented some really interesting data on. So first things first, Canada's population grows by over 1 million for the first time. So the, yeah. So the annual expansion of 2.7% is the, is the fastest among advanced economies. So it is interesting because the OECD puts us as one of the slowest growing advanced economies based on GDP, but we are the fastest growing by population. Um, so who knows? Maybe, you know, if they were using a different assumption for population, they could just have to refigure their numbers. Um, anyway, Canada's population grew by 2.7% in 2022, the fastest expansion. Uh, and it's on par with many African nations, which, you know, we touched on in, in some of those other episodes where they're seeing some of the fastest population growth in the world. So the country added a record 1 million, 50,000. 110 people over a one-year period to January 1st, bringing the total population to 39,566,248. And that's reported so I guess by we'll hit, Stats Canada. Uh, we'll hit that 40 million this year then. If we'll it, we'll if have our big 40th, yeah, 40th birthday party. It's great. I always wonder, I'm like, what? what's that last person? I want to well, meet that. I feel like that, it's been know, in the 30s a 40th for million. I feel like it's been in the 30s for like our whole life, right? I, I don't remember it ever being anything other than, you know, I think 32, 34, 36. That, those, yeah. that's, those are the stats I remember. Anyway, international migration accounted for 90, well, 95.9, so 96% of growth, a testament to Canada's decision to counter the economic drag of its aging populace by throwing its doors open to newcomers. Uh, here's a quote from Stats Canada. Uh, Stats Canada comes out and they said last year, 450,000 people landed here in Ontario calling it home. And that's why we need more schools, hospitals, bridges and infrastructure. And we especially need more homes. So there is broad public support for an open door policy. Rapid population growth in urban centers has rent soaring and forced many people to leave major cities. So there are economic consequences for, and you know, people have to leave to search for affordable housing elsewhere. And you're seeing massive interprovincial migration as a result of this. Increasing immigration not only adds to the labor supply and fills some shortages, which is a pr big problem that we're dealing with in Canada. And it's, you know, wage, like that's a component of inflation because you got to pay people more. Um, but it also boosts demand and consumption during a period of, of low growth because newcomers need basic necessities from housing to food to banking and mobile phones, which is a, is a funny one. So rapid population growth has already given a boost to telecom companies. The big three domestic oh, players, so yeah, Rogers, BCE Inc. and TELUS reported gains of more than 400,000 new mobile subscribers combined in the fourth quarter alone. Well, look at those guys. That's great for them. I tell yeah, you they what, needed you're not, you're not going to get worried it. about that. Not going to improve your customer service. I'll tell you that. I won't get into that though. I've said too much already. Um, but you guys all know what I'm That's talking about. That's an oligopoly about. problem, man. You don't get customer service in Canada because they just oligopoly. know. Oligopoly. 
but I, well, I always go, I'm just wax, wax poetic about oligopolies, but the reality is like they know that like, they're just going to lose you. They're a competitor and then they're going to get you back in two years anyway. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> when you yes. hate the competitor too, right? Oh man. Um, the increase in demand may be part of the reason why Canada's economy is proving more resilient than expected with jobs continuing to be added and consumer spending still holding up in the face of the highest interest rates that we have experienced in 15 years. Home prices are also expected to rebound quickly next year as key cities seen a keep seeing a large influx of new population. That might be a little bullish, but we'll see. So a little tell. optimistic for sure. Um, so uh, the sort of second order effect of this, and it's discussed in that article that you just uh, that we just went through, but is that there will eventually be a shortage of rental housing as a result eventually. of there being yeah I mean well there already is but and so and they're expect and so RBC has this this article out that says Canada and a lot of people have been sharing this one it's a really really excellent uh, article Canada's shortage of rental housing could quadruple by 2026 so last year Canada's purpose built rental housing stock grew at its fastest pace since 2014 so we are supplying the market. Vacancy rates nevertheless fell to a two-decade low as high levels of in-migration and the loss of housing affordability, so people getting pushed out of ownership, sparked a record surge in both demand and rents. Toronto and Montreal, cities likely to see the sharpest increases in demand due to immigration, experience the smallest expansions in supply among major Canadian cities. And that's purpose-built rental supply, so it doesn't really account for a lot of condos that are making it to the market. With Canada's immigration targets set at record levels and we're hitting them and affordability poised to remain stretched, the pressure is likely not going to let up. So the bottom line is without a significant boost to rental stock, Canada's rental housing gap could exceed 120,000 units by 2026, quadrupling the current deficit. This will tip the housing market into a greater state of imbalance and drive the optimal vacancy rate of 3%. So, so the government tries to have a 3% inflation rate. They try to have a 3% vacancy rate. And go, remember that CMHC report episode that we went through. Most vacancy rates are like 1% to 2%. So that 3% is even further out of reach. Now, this is interesting here because Canada did build a record number of apartments last year. So the stock of rental housing boomed in 2022, growing at 2.4%, which is the fastest since 2014. That boost... Uh, was never needed more with affordability challenges pushing uh, home ownership rates to a 30-year low and annual federal immigration target set to grow by 8% by 2025. Strong demand for rented accommodations is unlikely to ease. That seems to be pretty obvious. The growth in supply has been uneven across the country among Canada's six largest CMAs. The biggest gains in purpose-built rental stock were in Calgary, which increased its stock by 7.4%, and Ottawa Gatineau at 5.5%, and the smallest percentage increases were in Canada's most populous cities, with Toronto at just 2.1% and Montreal at 1.4%. The latter urban centers are among the most popular destinations for newcomers, welcoming an estimated 32% and 10% of international immigrants respectively last year. The slow growth in rentals in these cities will be especially problematic as demand for rented accommodation continues to outgrow the supply. So they go on to say in this report that this fierce demand is driving record rent increases. So think about this entire this episode in its entirety. At the beginning, we were talking about record price decreases, and now we're talking about record 
uh, rent increases. So your the asset that we talk about buying on the show is decreasing at the fastest pace or just decreased at the fastest pace that we've seen in our lifetime as millennials. And rents are increasing. The income portion of our property is increasing at the fastest pace that we've seen in our lifetime as millennials. So the economics of buying rental property is getting better or is improving at a rate that we haven't ever had the opportunity to see in our lifetimes. The challenge is interest rates. And we, you know, we just discussed how most economists think that those are likely going to improve. So we're almost getting to that point where there's that, that window where you really, really have a good buying opportunity as a, and this could be that, like that sort of once in a lifetime thing that you, that you talk about that I've been talking about for a long time. So the rapid absorption of these new units, it highlights the severity behind this rental housing gap that they talk about. The difference between the projected rental stock and the current rate of increase and the rental stock required to achieve balance or a 3% vacancy rate while keeping up with future demand. It also demonstrates the blistering speed at which the appetite for rent rented accommodation is growing. So remember I talk about a lot that pivot into a renter's economy that we're going to. We're, we're going in the way of the states where you see a lot of investment ownership, a lot of institutional ownership. Do you want to be the investor in that investor uh, ownership concept in that, that yes. investment ownership? Yeah. <laughs> Do you <laughs> exactly? And, and so, and we don't. Again, that they say that they don't ever see Canada returning to that optimal 3% vacancy rate without a significant acceleration of supply. And we already know we can't build enough. Only Alberta can build enough houses. Oh, man. Okay. Supply. Uh, here's a good one. Canada could be short more than 120,000 rental units by 2026. You know, honestly, personally, I feel like that's light. I, I, I think based off the research we've done, Dan, I think it could be a lot more than well, that. Well, that's probably going in with the assumptions that we're hitting the immigration targets, which we just, we just double, like we just hit, what is it? They wanted 500,000 last year, this year, and, and now they hit a million. So they've, if you, it, you know, increase that demand twofold, then yeah, we got a big problem on our hands. That poor can that just keeps – it's a bad day to be a can in Canada when you just get kicked down the road like this. <laughs> yeah, but they're also like maybe like filling the can with concrete as well. So you like – and you know what I mean? And, no, oh, not, that's funny. and making you take your shoe off. Like I think that the can is getting worse, right? That's good. Um, <laughs> we estimate there's already a 25,000 to 30,000 unit deficit in Canada's purpose-built rental stock. The shortfall is likely to grow exponentially over the next four years as demand soars. By 2026, the rental housing gap could reach more than 120,000 units, nearly four times the estimated shortfall today. Canada will need to add 332,000 units to its current rental stock between now and then to achieve a balanced market with rent stability. That would represent roughly a 20% increase in annual pace of construction that we did this year in 20, or sorry, last year in 2022, uh, when just 70,000 rental units were completed. The math is not adding up here, folks. I mean, unless, condo- maybe, unless maybe like they, a lot of the immigrants are skilled trades, then that's probably the only way that we could really hit that. That would right? be nice. Yeah. Or if there's massive incentives for skilled trades, which I know we're trying to push and, and we've got an episode coming out on it. So we'll leave it there for now. Uh, turning condo units into rentals, converting commercial buildings, which we touched on and adding rental suites to existing homes would certainly help ease the pressure. But these responses are unlikely to be enough. The best way to meet current and future demand as well as provide stability and hopefully greater affordability in the rental market is to considerably grow the supply of purpose-built rentals. And so there what do we have, have – yeah, and look, the biggest province in 
the uh, highest populous province in Canada is about to allow every homeowner to add at least one unit to their house. And I think, you know, you'll start to see more and more policy of this DIY density happening coast to coast. And we talk about this a lot. The missing middle is being activated. It will not be missing in a decade, I think. And so the real opportunities are coming in the pipeline. And, and I think this is where we need to be poised for investors to capitalize on everything, every data point that we just mentioned in this episode. Cause all of these, these stats just came out and they all just point more and more towards, if we can add units to the housing supply, there is money to be made and there's social value to be created. So um, that's my thought there. That's my two cents. I think this is a really, really good opportunity for us from a buying perspective, but from a value creation perspective as investors. That's likely the most valuable two cents anyone will ever get. Thank you for that, Dan. And thank you to everyone that tuned in today. We hope you got a ton of value out of today's episode. If you have any questions or want to reach out to Dan and I, even just to have a chat, Our email is in the show notes. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. We'll talk to you soon. The Canadian Real Estate Investor Podcast is for entertainment purposes only, and it is not financial advice. Nick Hill is a mortgage agent with Premier Mortgage Center and a partner in the G&H Mortgage Group. License number 10317, agent license M21004037. Daniel Foch is a real estate broker licensed with Rare Real Estate, a member of the Canadian Real Estate Association, the Toronto Real Estate Board, and the Ontario Real Estate Association.